0: Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Continue our sermon series in 1 Corinthians. For a sermon entitled, First Words. There are three words that change absolutely everything in your life. The three most powerful words that can ever be uttered by anyone, anytime, anywhere. I know by now you can think of those words. No, it's not, I love you, as powerful as that connection of words, that triad is. It's not the most important triad in the language No, the words I'm talking about, once they are uttered by your heart, they will make you forever changed. Words that will transform your relationship with God and words that will transform your relationship with those around you. These words will take you from darkness to light, from death to life, from sin to salvation. These words are the most powerful words ever to be put together together. In a sentence, Jesus is Lord. What is the church? The church is a weekly gathering of God's people on Resurrection Day. Sunday, those who dare utter those words, Jesus is Lord. When you, with your heart, declare Jesus is Lord, that statement divides you from all the rest of humanity and places you among the worshiping, adoring people of God. Jesus is Lord. The earliest, clearest, most concise confession of the early church. What did the early church say? We're gonna see this morning. The early church said, Jesus is Lord. Already in John's gospel, in the 13th chapter, Jesus said, You call me teacher, and you call me Lord, and you are right, for so am I. The real difference between someone who does not believe in Jesus and you is that you have dared to utter these words. You have said them with your lips and with your hearts and with your hands, your actions. Jesus is curios. Jesus is Lord. You remember in chapter 12, as we go on through 1 Corinthians, we have that peri-day construction where Paul says, now concerning. When he says now concerning, he's on to a new topic, probably a topic that the Corinthian church has asked Paul for information in a letter. And now in chapter 12, though we won't get into that today, he turns to spiritual gifts. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware, for you know that when you were Gentiles or pagans, you were led astray to the uncommunicative idols, the dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the power of the Spirit of God. There it is in 1 Corinthians, the earliest confession Paul says of God's people, no one can utter those words unless the Spirit empower her or him. Paul himself, while he persecuted the church, perhaps Paul had said, Jesus is accursed. He certainly thought the followers of the way, the followers of the church, were accursed. He was going to arrest them. But on that road to Damascus, when he saw that bright light, he uttered by the power of the Spirit, Jesus is Lord, and discovered a new way of life. Before I talk to you about spiritual gifts, Paul is saying to the church, I want you to know that everybody, whatever their gift, as long as they say by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is Lord, they're living under the power and the influence, they're living within the sphere of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is Lord. If you have a pencil and paper, you might want to take down some of this. This It's going to be very rich Christology. If you'd rather, you can go next week and download the whole sermon in printed form so you'll have a, a good Christological outline of what it means to say, Jesus is Lord. What does it mean? When the early church uttered those words, what does it mean when we ourselves, as current people of God, utter the words, Jesus is Lord? First of all, to say Jesus is Lord is to say the Christ of faith is the Jesus of history. To say Jesus is Lord is to say the Christ of faith is the Jesus of history. Put plainly, the 30-something-year-old rabbi who died in the first century in the city of Jerusalem, this earthly man, this rabbi who had 12 disciples and women and other followers, This Jesus who healed the sick and cast out demons and raised the dead and taught the parables about the kingdom of God. The one who died on the cross, this human Jesus, this Jesus who entered history is the Messiah of our faith. He is the Savior in whom we put our faith. Listen as I read a portion from Acts 2. You know, it's the day of Pentecost, and the Spirit of God is out on the people of God. There are flaming tongues of fire. Peter gets up to preach to the multitudes who are confused by the power and the presence of the Spirit of God. He says, This Jesus, God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses, therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth both what you see and hear. For is it not David who has into heaven, but he himself says, This Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. There it is, the earliest preaching of the church the Apostle Peter on that great day of Pentecost, when the Spirit is moving among the people, that God has made this Jesus, this rabbi that you crucified. He is the Lord. He is the Christ. To say Jesus is Lord is to say the Christ of faith is the Jesus of history. God raised him up from the dead He is exalted, it says in Acts. And David, who who died, has said that the Lord himself, Yahweh, said to my Lord, referring messianically to Jesus, I'll make your enemies a footstool, sit at my right hand. And God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, the Lord and the Christ. Let me simplify this first point. You can look at it this way. Jesus is the Christ. That's what it means when you say Jesus is Lord. When you say Jesus is Lord, you are saying that this man of history, that Rabbi of Jerusalem, the one born in Bethlehem, the carpenter of Galilee, the son of Mary is indeed the Holy One of Israel, the anointed one, the Christos, the Messiah, the Savior of God's people. When you say Jesus is Lord, You're saying that the Jesus of history, the one who hung on the cross, the one who had a back to be broken, the one who is here on planet Earth in time and space, is indeed the Christ, the Messiah. Secondly, when you say Jesus is Lord, you proclaim the deity of Christ. When you proclaim Jesus is Lord, you proclaim the deity of Christ or of Jesus, when you're saying Jesus is Lord, you are saying nothing less than Jesus is God. You remember the story after the crucifixion and resurrection, the disciples are gathered there in the upper room, and Thomas is absent from them. And Jesus all of a sudden appears in an upper room, and they experience the appearance of the resurrected Jesus. And when Thomas returns, they'll say, Thomas, man, you missed it. You should have been here. He is alive he returned. We saw him. You remember what old Thomas says? Thomas says, no, uh-uh, no. I saw him crucified. Unless I can see the nail prints, the scars, unless I can put my hand in the pit of his side from the sword, I refuse to believe anything you're telling me. Remember, eight days pass. They're still gathered in that room, and all of a sudden, without opening the door, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, appears before the disciples again. He looked straight at Thomas. He would heard what Thomas had said. He said, Thomas, I want you to come close. I want you to take your fingers, and I want you to touch the scars of my wrist, my crucified wrist. And Thomas, come even closer. I want you to put your whole hand in the side where the sword has been. And Thomas didn't need to make a move. And Thomas shouted out about Jesus, you are my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. John 20, 28. What Thomas had said, realizing that this rabbi of history is the Lord, he made him his God as well. To say Jesus is Lord is to say that Jesus has the power and the essence of God. It is to say Jesus is God. Thomas, you saw and you believed, but blessed are those who have never seen and yet they believe. In Philippians chapter 2, when Paul is writing that beautiful hymn, we have a similar theology. We read in Philippians 2.6, Jesus existed in the form of God. There it is. To say Jesus is Lord is to say Jesus is the creator God. But he did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name which is above every other name, that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those on the earth and those who are in heaven and those under the earth. Every tongue shall confess, every tongue will one day confess, Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul is telling the church of Philippi that Jesus had coexisted with God, the form of God. He emptied himself. Yet Paul says there will be another day when he who humbled himself for our salvation, when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Listen to me carefully this morning. Whether you're here in this sanctuary, you're watching by television or live stream, you will one day utter those words, those all important first words. One day you will utter Jesus is Lord. Just as surely as I am standing up here today, one day you will take the knee and you will shout, Jesus is Lord. You'll have no choice. He is the all-powerful creator of the universe. He's a judge. We learn of both the living and the dead. And one day you will say, Jesus is Lord. But will it be too late? Calling Jesus Lord at the day of judgment is like calling the fire department after the house has already been reduced To rubble. He wants you to acknowledge his lordship now. Everyone will do it, but will you do it today? Will you do it before it's too late? Here's a third thing To say Jesus is Lord is to yield all power to him over the universe, over the church, and over our individual lives. To say Jesus is Lord is to yield all power over to him, power over the universe. Power over the church, power over our individual lives. If you call him Lord, you gotta make him king. You've got to give him all the power, the authority, and the dominion that exist. In Acts 10:34, and following you read these words. I certainly understand now that God is not one to play favorites. This is when Cornelius receives the Spirit. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The words which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You know the thing that took place in Jerusalem. He is, Luke writes in Acts, Lord of all. To say Jesus is Lord is to yield to him all power and authority. He is Lord of all. There is no place that exists where Jesus is not Lord. There is no other planet. There is no place, nothing outside this cosmos. There is no place that you can go where Jesus is not Lord. Paul says he's Lord of all. In Romans 10 he says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You call him Lord, Paul writes, and you're saved. Whether Jew or Gentile, he is absolutely, authoritatively Lord of all. Or Romans 14, if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. 1 Corinthians 8, there's one God, the Father, in whom are all things, and we exist through him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. He is creator, this Lord Jesus, Paul to say. is saying. He has absolutely all the meaning. There's a fourth thing. To say Jesus is Lord is to affirm the triumph of Christ over death and over hostile cosmic powers, as evidenced by his resurrection. To say Jesus is Lord is to affirm to affirm that he has been triumphant over death and all the cosmic powers of evil. Ephesians 1. God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only this age, but the age to come. He has put all things in subjection under his feet and he gave him head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You don't think he's Lord of all He's Lord even over the last enemy of death. God raised him and exalted him, enthroned him at the right hand. He is Lord over all as made evident by his resurrection. Romans 4 says, We are called righteous, those who believe in God, who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead and was delivered up because of our sins and was raised for our justification. When the tomb is empty, he tells you he's Lord. There's a fifth thing. To say Jesus is Lord is to declare our accountability to him is righteous judge. To say Jesus is Lord is to declare our accountability to him is righteous judge. 1 Corinthians 4. Don't go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things that are hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's heart, then each man's praise will come to him from God. Or 2 Timothy 4, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is the judge of the living and dead by his appearing and his kingdom. When you say Jesus is Lord, you are declaring that Jesus is the judge of all, the living and the dead. Here's a final thing. When you say Jesus is Lord, you're saying you've made him your personal Savior. When you say Jesus is Lord, you're saying you've made him your personal Savior. Bob is Griggs, a member of our church, died years ago. His wife, Nancy, was very sorrowful about Bob's death, and I began to ask about Bob and his life as I was planning for the funeral. All started, Nancy said, when she was set up on a blind date, they told her, most most handsome soldier soldier you'll ever meet. She said he wore the military cap the whole time on the first date, so she wasn't sure whether he's all that handsome or not. So she agreed to go on a, a second date. He had a car, and as was the case in those days, how simple were these days, they would always date, they'd go get a Coke. That was a date, go in and get a Coke. That was the essence of the date. They went and got a Coke. And it it wasn't long from that October date of going in the car and getting a Coke until there was a a wedding on June the 1st. And they never really fought. Well, I did a little research. Does that scare you? I'll do a little research for your funeral. I found two times that they fought. One occasion was when they would come home from the grocery store, especially in the spring and summertime. Bob would sneak out on the back porch with a carton of ice cream and he would open it up and he would eat that soft cream all around the edges, right there when they first got home from the grocery store. And she'd go to get some ice cream and he'd put his spoon in there and made a cone kind of out of it. Well, they fought about that. I'd fight about that too. I don't blame her. That's a fight. There's another time, as in those days, women wore a lot of wigs and she wore a wig to where he was working at Sears and he didn't like the wig and he made a critical comment and she just walked home and let him drive himself home. He said the wrong thing about the wig. When they got married, Nancy, dare not ask her mom, didn't tell her anything about it because she was still, don't even get any idea, 16 years of age. Or she told me, almost 17. She kept saying, almost 17, which means she was 16 years (laughs) of age. At 16 years of age, she planned their own wedding. It was a covert operation, had a white dress made with all the pink accessories, pink gloves, pink shoes, pink purse, pink flowers, pink hat, everything pink to go with the white dress and Bob, well, he wore a powder blue suit. I tried to imagine that white dress and that pink purse and pink shoes and pink hat, that powder blue suit, and then I try to forget it just immediately as the <laughs> image comes to my mind. When her parents finally learned about the wedding, Nancy's dad said to him, Son, I'm going to tell you I'm a small man, but that still doesn't mean I can't whip you. If you don't take good care of her, I'm coming after you. Bob Isgriggs was a wonderful husband, But he was not a man of faith. He would never go to church. They had some friends, Grady and Beth Booth. They'd been stationed together in the military with Bob in Japan. And Grady and Beth would pick up their only daughter, Pam, pick her up every Sunday and carry her to church. There was a deacon at that church called Walter Fancher, and Walter noticed this little girl, Pam, was by herself every Sunday, asked about her parents, and one Sunday she'd say her mom was sick, and the next Sunday she would say her dad was sick, and the next Sunday she would say they were busy. And so Deacon Fancher began to put together that, the, that Grady and Beth Booth were bringing Pam to church, but her parents weren't coming. One day, when Beth, who was picking up Pam for church, one day... Not on a Sunday. She was taking her own three sons to preschool, and there was a terrible collision. Her door popped open. She suffered a head injury and she died, and luckily, the three preschool boys were not injured. Being friends, such good friends with Bob, that began to shake Bob Isgriggs up just a bit. It was later told to Bob after he declared Jesus is Lord that Beth Boots had said to her husband two weeks before her death, I would give my life, I would give my life if Bob Isgriggs would call Jesus Lord. A few weeks passed. Bob was sitting in the house, and he did the most unlikely thing. Nancy said she never expected him to do. He said, go call the preacher. Call the preacher? Yeah, call the preacher. He was shaken up by Beth's death so much. The preacher came over and led him in a prayer to declare the Lordship of Jesus Christ and accept Jesus as his Savior. And after he accepted Christ, that preacher said to Bob, on the Wednesday night, there was a deacon in our church, Walter Fancher, who during the prayer meeting came down and got on his knees and cried out loud that he wished Bob Isgriggs would call Jesus Lord. To call Jesus Lord is to make him your own Savior. Romans 10 9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Or Romans 10:13, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. To call Jesus Lord. Have you done so? A man came to visit my office years ago, and he said he wasn't a member of the church. He just occasionally watched on TV. I don't know why he came to see me, but he did, a business leader in our city. And we sat down on the couch, and he, his life was in a wreck. and He knew it was in a wreck. It was in shambles. The pieces of the puzzle had been taken apart. He wanted to know what he needed to do to get life straight. I shared the gospel with him. I told him there was only one way. There's only three words he needed to utter, and that is Jesus is Lord. Anything else wouldn't work. No other formula, no other doctor, nothing. You have to say Jesus is Lord. Repent of your sins and accept him as your Savior. He listened carefully. He asked some questions for clarification. I said, now, I'm not going to twist your arm to do this. I want you to think about it. I noticed in Scripture, Jesus never twists anyone's arm to proclaim him as Lord. I laid out the gospel. I said, you think about it. You let me know what you want to do. I said to him, I can take you to the mountaintop, but I can't make you leap. That's up to you. I didn't hear from him or see him for years. Had no idea what decision he'd made. And about two years went by, and I was at a retail Uh, sports store and he came running across the parking lot shouting I did it I did it I said did what I'd forgotten about the conversation he said I jumped from the mountain you told me you could take me to the top of the mountain but I would have to choose to jump I have jumped and Jesus is my Lord and Savior what about you this morning I can take you to the mountaintop I've just laid out the theology of the Lordship of Jesus from 1 Corinthians to John to Acts to Romans. You can't deny it. One day, you will call Jesus Lord. He'll change everything about your life. He'll change all your priorities, change all your relationships, Instead of living for yourself. You're either worshiping God through Jesus or you're worshiping yourself. You got two choices. That's it. You're worshiping God or yourself. You have to make that decision. You must decide to put your faith in Him. One day you will. Every knee will bow, and one day every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Would you do it today? Let's pray together. Well, God, maybe there's someone even by watching by way of television or live stream or here in this room who needs to say, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. Just pray that in your heart. I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. And I believe that Jesus died and rose again. And therefore, I shall say, Jesus is my Lord. Amen.